0: Welcome to Rising. I'm Amber Athey and I'm back with Jessica Burbank for another Friday edition of the show. Good morning, Jessica.
1: Good morning, another big news day. Absolutely, what's up first? Well, a lawyer for Elon Musk sent a letter to Meta founder Mark Zuckerberg threatening to sue the company over what Musk claims is a plot to create a quote, copycat of Twitter according to reporting in semaphore the letter accuses meta of poaching twitter employees to build and work on its new rival app threads
0: elon musk responded to the news on twitter writing quote competition is fine cheating is not uh jessica have you had the chance to go on threads yet i'm have not downloaded the app or anything so i i'm not sure what it looks like but people are calling it the twitter killer apparently
1: I'm still partying over on Twitter. I got the Blue Sky, I got the spill. And then when threads came out, I was just exhausted. And the reviews initially, I heard of it, were not very good. And I get that it's a big deal. They're saying they have 30 million users already. Blue Sky only has 50,000. I think a company like Meta has the servers necessary to host a huge web app like this one. But to me, it's like we're picking which billionaire's app we're going to use. The rate limit exceeded situation, I think, is why a bunch of people hopped over. Because if Twitter's dysfunctional, they want an app that has the same functionality and functions when they want to use it. So I think that makes a lot of sense. We might see it kill Twitter. But I think Elon's being dramatic to tank an app like Twitter and then be mad we want a different one.
0: I kind of wonder if this lawsuit is not another attempt for him to kind of weasel his way out of actually having to run Twitter, because he doesn't seem to really like it that much. Um, At least since he's bought it, he seems to be making a series of decisions that just almost seemed like he wants to wipe his hands clean of the whole matter. But there were two things about Threads that kind of turned me off of it. The first is that there are no DMs. I'm all about the DMs. Uh, Twitter DMs are where the fun happens, all the group chats, and then also um, one of the benefits that's also a drawback is that apparently to have a Threads account, you have to have an Instagram account. And so that's how you actually create your profile because of course, Mark Zuckerberg is trying to create this um, lateral monopoly system. but. People are finding out that once they signed up for Threads and they tried to delete their account, they were also prompted to delete their Instagram account. So apparently they're now now, uh, intertwined and you can't have one without the other. And that whole business uh, gives me a little bit of an icky feeling.
1: Yeah, I think we get into just a weird territory. It reminds me of all of the copyright lawsuits we've had over music At a certain point, certain chord progressions that have been done before will happen again. There's a limited number of chords, the way we do music in the West, and it's just going to happen. When it comes to social media, some kind of platform where people can post text is very basic. So when you have this letter come through where they say there's been this, you know, unlawful and willing exchange of intellectual property and trade secrets, it sounds dramatic from just a a basic common sense perspective, when I think about it, it's like if you're not gonna offer an app with that functionality, what's the big deal if someone else does? That does sound like basic market competition. If your app doesn't work at all, can someone else make one that does? And so I think with Meta and with the linking of Instagram and threads, that sounds to me like it's more of an antitrust concern when we talk about the law than anything else. I don't like that we have a handful of billionaires running our social media platforms. I think that's really what's at the heart of this. Will we see any kind of antitrust lawsuit come out of that linking of your Instagram and your Threads account? I'm not sure because we haven't really seen this DOJ be pretty hard on antitrust law. How we saw them handle the Ticketmaster situation was basically like, okay, you guys pretty much have a monopoly, you've consolidated in this space. But maybe our solution is you just tell people about the hidden fees instead of adding them at the end. Problem solved. (laughs) No. Ticketmaster is still a monopoly. So the DOJ is pretty weak on this issue. I don't know if we'll see anything come out of it.
0: Yeah, I think that's right. It's been really disappointing the, um, I guess, pushback on antitrust regulation, particularly of big tech and um, one of the biggest problems with these tech platforms as it relates to the lack of competition is that they have all these different terms of service and they end up regulating speech. Um, Mark Zuckerberg, I guess to his credit, kind of pulled back on Facebook and Instagram, being really strict on this idea of shutting down disinformation. They've been one of the um, less regulatory bodies in terms of big tech companies, but they haven't been perfect. And there's certainly been some uh, viewpoint discrimination that's been happening there. And I find that all really concerning Um, And the whole DM question, the reason they're not having the DMs apparently on threads is because Facebook already has, or Meta rather, already has the Facebook Messenger app as well as WhatsApp as well as Instagram DMs. So at the same time when you say, okay, but I want DMs on the threads, it's like, all right, Facebook basically already controls all of uh, private communication in the first place.
1: Yeah, I don't want all of my private communication to be owned by one corporation. That's terribly scary to me. When people are like upset about the the notion of state run media or this idea of like a planned economy or centralized economy, uh, having one or a few corporations run all of our social media and host our communications online, equally as scary to have it just in the hands of a few people is what we're afraid of. When we say stuff like that, that's precisely what this is. So that's terrifying. I think from an economic perspective, it's also interesting having Elon Musk get in the tech game in Silicon Valley, because at one point there was a, a rival between the two cities of you know the San Francisco Bay area and Boston as to who would become the tech hub. Given that Boston had MIT, uh, there was a, a suspected advantage in Harvard and these schools that are, that are in that area. But what happened was the, the free sharing of intellectual property in the Bay Area across different startups and organizations made it a more favorable climate actually for tech companies to do their work there. That wasn't the work culture over in Boston. So Elon Musk coming in and having this approach I think shows that also the culture of tech is changing in Silicon Valley and that might have some economic implications. Is it good that they share information and improve upon all of the tech that they're creating? Is it Are we worse off in it as an economy, as users of these apps, when they stop sharing that information? Is it going to hurt our progress when it comes to tech? Maybe.
0: Yeah, it's a very interesting dichotomy because as he's filing this lawsuit and trying to push back against what he refers to as theft as opposed to competition, he's also made quite a bit of Twitter's source code open to the public for them to help find bugs or other issues that might be hurting the site's efficiency or productivity. Um, so I, I don't really understand, I guess, what, um, what his actual aim is here in terms of his goal towards data sharing, um, because it seems a little bit conflicted.
1: Yeah, it feels like he's punishing former employees for going over to Zuckerberg's camp. When I think about being fired from a job, from like a personnel or management perspective, uh, those people are probably pretty upset. Uh, Being fired from Twitter seems as though the layoffs happened pretty suddenly. And to go over to work for another company that's willing to employ you to do what you know how to do when you need a job, when you probably weren't expecting to be unemployed or even have a new leader of this company, that's pretty shocking. And so I think Elon, by expecting those folks to not go work for Zuckerberg, and they say that they quote, know that they're giving trade secrets to Zuckerberg so that they can develop threads, how sure can they be? What evidence do they have? Will that evidence hold up in a court of law? It seems to me kind of petty, to be honest.
0: It also seems like Elon Musk is trying too hard with Twitter. I think when he came in, we really just wanted him to get rid of the viewpoint discrimination, to make the terms of service applied equally to all users of the app. And instead he's made all of these other sort of not so subtle changes, like adding the For You page when you immediately log in. Um, There's been an increase in the use of the community notes function. He's been testing out some other features like longer tweets or tweet subscriptions and the Twitter Blue platform. And I just don't think people were asking for all of that. And uh, so I think that this um, thread's popularity is kind of the natural outgrowth of his own inability to just leave the app alone and just fix the one or two things people were having an issue with
1: suspicion when Elon first bought Twitter, that his entire goal was to just tank the app, that Twitter and the free speech platform is something that's inconvenient. If you're a billionaire and you wanna maintain the status quo, I'm skeptical that Elon ever really cared about free speech. And from what we're seeing, we are seeing the, the tanking of Twitter. And when we have this dysfunctionality of the app where users can't post and can't read tweets, that's glaringly obvious to me. When you fire all of the staff that keep the app functioning for people, that suggests to me that you don't care a lot about the app being used. And to say that the firing was necessary for the efficiency of the company, it's pretty clear at this point that that wasn't the case. And then to try and block someone else from having another social media platform that serves the same functionality, I just don't think He had pure intentions in buying Twitter. I think he really wanted to remove this very useful platform we had because he saw it as something that a lot of progressives use, that a lot of leftists use, and he dissented from those political views and didn't want people to use Twitter to be organizing, which they were.
0: I think my pie in the sky scenario out of all of this is that We have people so uh, scattered across various social media apps that they all become basically useless. So you have some people on Twitter. You've got the Parler and Truth Social and Getter people. Then you've got the Blue Sky and Threads people and we're all in our separate camps and everybody realizes it sucks because part of the whole appeal of being on Twitter was being able to argue with people <laughs> that you couldn't stand. And we don't, we're not going to have that anymore, it doesn't seem like. So hopefully this just leads to the total demise of all of these apps in the first place because I think honestly we'd all be better off if we spent less time on social media.
1: Yeah, instead of relying on the social media to be the public square, we should just hang out at the public square.
0: <laughs> right, but let's bring balls back while we're at
1: it. Yeah, the rise of the city-state again.
0: <laughs> More rising right after this. Hunter Biden's legal team is mounting a counteroffensive against Republican-led congressional claims That the Department of Justice gave the president's son special treatment as they investigated his failure to pay taxes. The GOP is fuming over the agreement reached between the DOJ and Hunter's attorneys that would shield him from jail time if he pleads guilty to two tax crimes.
1: Biden attorney Abby Lowell sent a scathing letter to Congress accusing the House of skirting proper protocols and rules of conduct. Out of their seeming, quote, obsession with attacking the Biden family, here to break down the latest in the Hunter Biden probe is Kelly Meyer, a congressional correspondent for News Nation. Welcome, Kelly. Thank you for having me. So what do you make of this? Was this letter something that was appropriate for Biden attorney Abby Lowell to send? Is it merited? So it's interesting, just taking a
2: look, you know, a 10,000 above uh, earth foot view, basically, that this has been going on for so long, um, this back and forth between Republicans on Capitol Hill and Hunter Biden and this investigation. You know, looking back to 2018, I believe the probe was originally opened. That was during the former President Trump's administration, um, and this has been ongoing. And I think you see Republicans um, still trying to find the ties between. Um, Hunter Biden, or even if they can more members of the Biden family um, to these overseas um, business deals that they've been looking into. You know, we saw that um, he had reached that plea deal um, in the tax and gun case that you know the two they say minor tax crimes and admitting to the facts of the gun charge. Um, all of this to keep him out of jail. So there's some that are saying that you know the long running criminal investigation into the president's son is is done. But then the prosecutor in the case is saying that the investigation remains ongoing, suggesting that there's matters you know, beyond the tax and gun issues still under scrutiny. So it looks like we're going to see Republicans going forward, especially we can imagine going into 2024, an election year where uh, President Biden is running for reelection, that we'll be continuing to see this effort to go after his son, Hunter Biden, and see if there's anything more that they can um, find out in this investigation.
0: The IRS whistleblower Gary Shapley has claimed that the investigation was intentionally slow-walked so that it would finish after the midterm elections, and has also claimed that the prosecuting attorney was declined the opportunity to bring more serious charges in other states besides Delaware. Has Biden's, have Biden's attorneys rather responded to any of the whistleblower claims?
2: Um, you know, I'm not aware of them responding um, to that just yet. Um, you know, and the White House really, as far as we know from the press briefing room from the podium um, has remained quiet on all of this and letting the has tried to separate this, letting the Justice Department and others um, do their job. So in terms of slow walking or any kind of special treatment, that is happening. Um, we we don't know. We can't say that that's that's happening within the, the administration here. Of course, it just comes under closer scrutiny with it being an election year, with uh, the president running again, and with. His father being in the position that he's in as president of the United States. But in any case, um, is what we saw, even with the classified documents investigation into President Biden, we saw that they were trying to remain separate from the Department of Justice. So they're trying to be very careful here to not comment on anything that is beyond their purview in the White House. So this the, week, the, the White GOP, House.
1: Go ahead, Jessica. Sorry, go ahead, Amber.
0: Okay, sure enough. This week, the White House was in disarray after a white powdery substance which turned out to be cocaine was found in the West Wing last Sunday. We still don't know who the cocaine culprit is, but we've learned some new details about where the package was located. Let's watch.
1: There are, in fact, two West Wing. I,
3: I don't have. Uh, there are, a, in fact,
1: two West Wing entrances. You know that. I know that. But for the benefit of our audience, and now the investigation has progressed, and so they're saying the West Executive entrance, which, as you noted, is closer to the Situation Room and closer uh, to uh, the Navy Mess, where there's the facilities for food and so forth. It is uh, also next to West Executive Drive. That's where, for example,
0: the Vice President's vehicle is parked.
1: When pushed for more information, White House Deputy Secretary Andrew Bates told reporters on Air Force One this yesterday. Let's watch.
3: I I don't have a a response to that because we have to be careful about the Hatch Act. Uh, What I will
2: say is that I have noticed there does seem to be some increasing frustration coming from that corner in general. Uh, And I think it is probably rooted in the contrast between their substantive policy records
1: so Kelly do you think the Hatch Act would be relevant there for them to speak on this or not
2: there's a lot of criticism around that um and you know folks weighing in on both sides um saying that you know this situation is different um there's a lot of questions more so going into the security um how something like this could get in uh be left in the area it was left in um just because could this happen with something else maybe something um anthrax or something like that because remember when this first happened they didn't know exactly what it was it went through um you know being analyzed uh the DC fire came in and they were able to conclude that it was cocaine but there was concern that it might be something else, and that being so close to where the president is, um, if it is, as they said, close to the Situation Room, things like that. So there's this larger concern of how something like this could get into the White House and what they're going to do going forward. So they're, I guess they're arguing that this is more of a, a safety and security matter, national security matter, um, even beyond just the headlines of cocaine found in the White House and whose was it? Um, I think we're taking a look more at how can we keep the white house safe and ensure that something like this doesn't happen again
0: the biden administration previously dismissed several staff members because they had been using marijuana but in response to uh, assertions about who the cocaine might have belong to the White House has been kind of mom on what the potential disciplinary actions would be for that individual. Why do you think that they've been so tight lipped about a possible response to whoever is found to be the culprit?
2: It's hard to say. Um, I, I believe that you know they're looking at this as though it's, it's too soon to tell what um, the punishment or anything would be because we don't know it was, or they say they don't know who it belonged to, um, they keep bringing up the fact that tours may go through and then things are coming up that it might not be where tours were going through. Uh, so maybe if they were putting it on that it could have been um, a member of the public coming in. We know that this was found on the weekend, on a Sunday. We know that President Biden was at Camp David. He had left Friday. He didn't return until Tuesday. We also know that he hasn't answered any questions surrounding this as reporters have been shouting at him, trying to find out, you know, where did this come from? Who's was this? Why is this in the White House? Um, and no response there. Uh, so we'll see if we hear more from him on this or the administration in the days going forward. But again, I think we're focusing in on just, you know, how they're going to handle this kind of really security breach
1: going forward. Now, given that the cocaine that was found was so close to the Situation Room, uh, it doesn't seem to me that that would be a place that's frequented by folks on tours. I also know that there's a certain level of security for folks who go on tours through the White House. Is it likely that the person who was in possession of the cocaine was a member of Biden's cabinet or was very close to the president or is very high up in government in the United States? And if so, do you see, you know, members of Congress taking action in the House Oversight Committee to deal with something like this if the response isn't satisfactory from the Biden administration?
2: Yeah, and it's hard to say right now, you know, like you said, there's more coming out every day. Um, Now we're hearing that it might not have been in the area that was frequented by visitors, it was an area that may not have been frequented by visitors. So there's more and more details that are coming out. Um, And I think right now it's some speculation as to whose it was. Um, But I do believe that Congress is going to look into this so they were gone this week for the july 4th holiday so they return next week both the house and the senate so i'm sure you can expect um that this will be something that they will be asked about both democrats and republicans and i believe it's something republicans are going to try to dig into as well thank you kelly
0: meyer for joining us to break down this
2: topic
1: Former President Obama's Attorney General Eric Holder lambasted a federal judge's order this week curtailing communication between the Biden administration and social media companies. Holder took to Twitter on Wednesday, calling the decision, quote, pretty stupid and potentially dangerous. The judge ordered the preliminary injunction to protect free speech which he says could have been curbed as a result of a government effort to fight false information and narratives it doesn't agree with about coronavirus and other issues.
0: The mainstream media also blasted Judge Terry Doty's decision, maintaining it could allow for misinformation to run rampant. As journalist David Swede pointed out on Twitter yesterday, the New York Times zeroed in on a statement Dowdy previously made where he said, quote, COVID-19 vaccines do not prevent transmission of the disease. We now know that quote-unquote debunked statement turned out to be true. <laughs> so, Jessica, so, what do you make of Eric Holder calling this decision stupid after there has been quite a bit of evidence that the Biden administration was working with big tech companies to try to censor people?
1: I think it's stupid, but not for the same reason Eric Holder thinks it's stupid. I think it's stupid because it's still a caveat in this decision, that if the government deems you know, the posts on social media or what have you a quote, national security threat, they still have the right to have it be taken down by whatever you know social media company they're dealing with. And that's the excuse they always use. So to me, it's like, will this actually change anything? Will this actually reel in any of the government's power over what posts are on social media? Who's going to subpoena or FOIA that information from the U.S. government for them to disclose? why it's a national security threat or how, I don't foresee that happening, which means the government will still have discretion over what social media posts stay up or not. So I don't really see this case having much of an impact on actual practice and policy when it comes to how the government handles cases like this.
0: Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, especially when it comes to COVID, the government's excuse for rooting out what they referred to as misinformation and disinformation was that it was a public health or national security threat because of the threat of the pandemic. And so many of the items that they were involved in censoring at that time turned out to be true. I mean, that example right there where they said that it was misinformation to say that the COVID vaccines... uh, did not prevent transmission. There were other uh, claims that were censored, such as the idea that the lockdowns might have had more um, latent deaths or or negative side effects than lives actually saved. They censored things like women saying that their menstrual cycles had been disrupted by the vaccine or that the vaccine didn't stop you from getting COVID. And it just seemed like uh, item after item that was deemed disinformation by social media companies at the behest of our public health bureaucrats ended up being right. And I think what they've done um, by having a direct hand in using these big tech companies to censor people who were asking questions and trying to find the best information is that they only uh, destroyed trust in their institutions and they made it harder for people to trust them. So. Um, regardless of the judge's decision, I think the damage has already been done, um, wherein government officials have proven themselves to be untrustworthy, have proven themselves to be censors working uh, on behalf of and directly with big tech companies. And that's not going to leave the American people anytime soon.
1: Yeah, I think there's also, this is twofold, right? There's the, the issue of censorship. So the government flagging content to the social media companies and asking for it to be removed. But there's also this aspect of the government obtaining data from a lot of these corporations. As we just covered when we spoke about Twitter, they have a lot of information on our private messages from DMs, not just on Twitter, but from all of the social media apps, including WhatsApp, Facebook DMs, Instagram DMs. There's a lot of communication that the government can easily get access to on the grounds that there's a potential national security threat. So when we talk about Having some kind of state-run media uh, or a large corporation that has access to all of our data, that's the reality we're living in. The government can easily access any of our personal data that it wants to. And that's something that I think should scare us a little bit, especially when we see Congress trying to also pass legislation that allows them to remove entire web-based apps, if they deem them to be something that is unsafe, right? They frame this as we might need to ban TikTok because China's meddling with our data, getting information about what cat videos they watch. Really what that legislation was about was allowing them to have the power to limit what we can do uh, on the internet. Should the government have that power to do that in a free society? I don't think so. I think the control over communication is very scary and very dangerous, especially when the information being shared is of the public interest and who gets to decide where that line is, is something that's really unclear in a democracy. And I think it's safer to be on the side of let more information flow rather than let the government regulate more and get access to all of our data.
0: Yeah, and we also have to be clear about just how uh, aggressively, the Biden administration was working with these companies to censor what they deemed misinformation. It wasn't just the case where they were, you know, emailing a PR contact at Twitter and saying, "Hey, I think this post might violate, um, you know, the terms of service," or even just going through the normal reporting process. There was actually a really concerted effort to make sure that those lines of communication were open, pretty much 24/7. So, in the New York Times article where they Basically, tried to take the side of the Biden administration. They still admit that this was a really comprehensive um, relationship. They say that there were top, uh, there was a top digital advisor for Biden who was emailing officials at Facebook, urging them to do more to limit the spread of vaccine hesitancy. At the CDC, officials held what they called weekly sync meetings with Facebook, emailing the company 16 misinformation posts. And the Surgeon General's top aide in the summer of 2021 was urging Google, Facebook, and Twitter to do more to combat disinformation. So this was not just some harmless uh, situation where people were going through Twitter and trying to find posts to report, but they were actually going directly to the executives at those companies and basically putting pressure on them. And the huge rub here is that if the government officials are, in fact, putting pressure on these companies, that is a First Amendment violation. And it takes away this uh, explanation that the left has tried to use um, from the Biden administration and members of the media that these are private companies and they can get rid of whatever whatever information they want. That just doesn't work if you're doing it at the behest of government officials under the threat of perhaps more regulation or uh, public condemnation. Um, That obviously runs into an issue of government-regulated speech.
1: I think the the left left or the progressive left is very critical of this and liberals are definitely making excuses for the Biden administration. And it seems to be in the case of COVID, especially in the direction of, well, it was for public health and public safety. They didn't want people getting the wrong information. Okay, from a public health perspective, if you want to manage coronavirus and help people get vaccines and spread information about it, do an effective and good job communicating your position and the research that you believe in, that you are relying on to make policy decisions, it is your job to be a good communicator so that we have good public health in this country. If you are failing at that, your response of of censorship, I'm sorry, I just don't believe in that. It's your role as the government to do a good job administering public health. And COVID quite frankly, was a communication failure in the realm of public health. And so it's actually their responsibility to do a good job communicating. And by them taking the easy way out, I just I don't have any respect for that decision there to then be censorship. And I think that led in the long run to more mistrust because it seems like the government's hiding things from us. It seems that maybe there's a reason they don't want us to see it. It makes people wonder. It makes people come up with conspiracy theories. They're sowing mistrust by doing that. And then as I reflect on Rick Scott's recent video out of Florida, uh, Senator Rick Scott said he doesn't want socialists or communists coming to Florida. It reminds me of this McCarthy Red Scare era where they did use this reasoning of these leftist ideas being a national security threat because we can't have people in the U.S. uh, sympathizing with the Soviet Union or what have you. To limit the free exchange of ideas in that way was really harmful. And so if you are a progressive or a leftist, most people are very skeptical of policies like this.
0: Yeah, that's fair. I do think that liberal should have been the term that I used as opposed to left. Um, and I, I also think that this harkens back to the Hunter Biden laptop ahead of the 2020 election, where the Biden administration, or at that time, the Biden campaign, rather, had a group of former national security officials sign a letter claiming that that was Russian disinformation. And then that became the impetus for big tech companies to censor the story about the laptop uh, across both Twitter and Facebook and actually suspend the New York Post for reporting on that information. And so when you see that in concert with all of the censorship regarding the coronavirus pandemic, it does seem like it was the Democratic Party that was really pushing hard to make sure that inconvenient narratives were not able to be shared among Americans, even if they were accurate. And that is very dangerous for any democracy.
1: Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I, I just don't see it from like a right-left dichotomy. I think we've seen this for many, many years, people in positions of power using their power so that people don't dissent from it. If that means controlling social media, that means controlling social media. If that means controlling print media and being in cohorts with the people uh, running newspapers before the age of internet. It's been going on for centuries in the United States. And so I'm always skeptical of people in positions of power who frequently and have been for a long time using that power to quell dissent in a country that supposedly has a right to free speech and free press It seems that that amendment and that basic right has never really been guaranteed in the United States and I think it's good people are focused on it. I think that means we'll get closer to it. I wish it was a more united front of the people who want to enjoy the free speech against the people in power who have used it for a very long time instead of them sewing this dissent across the line of right and left. Because I think it would be much more effective if we all said, hey, we actually all want free speech. This is popular across any party identity and both parties do this. We'll be back with more Rising after this. Former United States national security officials have reportedly held secret talks with Russians close to Vladimir Putin with the goal of laying the foundation for negotiations to end the war in Ukraine, per 12 people briefed on the discussions, NBC News reports. Russian Foreign Affairs Minister Sergei Lavrov reportedly met with the officials in New York in April of this year. Former American diplomat and departing president of the Council on Foreign Relations Richard Haas was one of the people who met with Lavrov. They were also joined by Europe expert Charles Kupchan and Russian expert Thomas Graham, both of whom are former White House and State Department officials who are also on Council of Foreign Relations fellows. NBC reports. They allegedly discussed the future
0: of Russian held territory in Ukraine and an agreement that could quote, could be tolerable to both Russia and Ukraine. Joining us now to discuss is senior fellow and military expert at Defense Priorities, Lieutenant Colonel Daniel Davis. Thank you so much for joining us, Colonel. What do you make of the fact that this is former officials involved in these talks and not current officials, meaning, you know, aides at the White House or individuals with uh, the State Department?
3: Yeah, by itself, it's not necessarily unusual uh, for these kinds of things. It's called track two diplomacy, which they typically want to have a layer of separation between the official government and you know the other party so that they will be a little bit more free to have conversations and just kind of musing about well what if how about this uh, as opposed to any kind of official kind of situation especially those that have to be made public so by itself it's it's fine and actually i encourage and have been on your show many times that's exactly what we should be doing is to try to find a way both with ukraine and with russia to see if we can find a way to end this war. Uh, But this one is a little bit more shrouded in uncertainty because uh, you have various people talking about that. Yes, this has happened and we had these conversations and then various times you actually have Lavrov saying, hey, I'll, I'll talk to anybody. But then in other reports that he flatly contradicted and said, no, I didn't have any conversation with these guys and then ridiculed some of them as being relics from the 90s that uh, he wouldn't have any serious discussions with. So it's really uncertain what's actually happening and with whom at this point.
1: What do you make of the individuals that were involved in these negotiations with Lavrov? Do you think that they're the relevant people to be negotiating on behalf of the United States to end the war in Ukraine? Or do you kind of see them as not at all representatives of the State Department and just independent actors?
3: Uh, I mean, they by definition they are you know independent actors and private citizens all acting on their own behalf, for the most part. Uh, but I, I certainly would have preferred to see somebody a little bit different, uh, because a lot of these guys, frankly, have been kind of into something close to the neocon camp for quite a long time, and, I, and I'm not sure that they're the right people, the right mentality of people, the the right uh, temperament, if you will, to actually talk about ways that we can find a, a mutually agreeable path. Uh, to end the war. Uh, because I think, you know, too many people in the United States and these guys might seem to be sort of in that camp are still looking at it from wanting to negotiate from a position of, of strength and, and, and a position of power in that we want to try to dictate terms. We want to say, hey, we want you to make a deal, but terms that we like in terms that are agreeable to us. And right now, uh, the Russians don't strike me as being in a mood to, to settle for anything that's uh, that's to our advantage or to Ukraine's advantage. And, and so it remains to be seen what they'll do. And I think a lot of that's going to depend on what happens with the remainder of this offensive that's going on right now from Ukraine and what the Russians do in response to the rest of the summer. So right now, I think it's probably a good idea. Well, actually, I know it's a good idea for anybody to be talking about peace, but I don't think anyone on any side is going to take anything seriously until after we see how things play out through the summer, unfortunately.
0: These conversations reportedly took place back in April. If they were to go back to the table at this point, do you think things would be a little bit different considering the recent attempted coup by the Wagner group? Do you think that the US is coming from a little bit more of a position of strength at this point?
3: Yeah, uh, unfortunately, no, I think it's the opposite because wow. that was the April was before the Ukraine had launched their offensive. Now they have, and it was, it's been so far a complete disaster uh, from the perspective of the Ukraine side, they spearheaded this thing with two of their most uh, well-trained, well-equipped, NATO-trained, and, and uh, I'm talking about with U.S. Bradley fighting vehicles, German uh, tanks, uh, and and they were just ran into a bus saw. They just haven't made any penetrations to date. Uh, meanwhile, this whole this whole issue with the Prigozhin, it was certainly an embarrassment for the uh, for Putin. Uh, it, was, uh, it was something that it didn't want to happen, but it has actually very little impact on the fighting because Wagner had already been taken off the line after they took Bakhmut at the end of May. So they weren't even really part of uh, of any of the defense right now, they were being rebuilt for potential use in the future and who knows, maybe they still will or at least some of them, Uh, but it really has had no operational impact and you gotta consider that was maybe 25,000 out of somewhere around 380,000 troops that Russia has in Ukraine at the moment. So percentage wise, it wasn't that big of a deal Uh, It remains to be seen what that will do to Russia's offensive capacity because uh, the Wagner group was their most effective offensive uh, unit. And uh, that remains to be seen what they can do later. But it hasn't done anything. It hasn't had any impact pro or con on Russia's defense ability, which they have uh, really, really done well by any measure, unfortunately, for the Ukraine side.
1: So given that this is former U.S. officials, right, it's track two diplomacy or maybe track 1.5, given that uh, Sergei Lavrov is an active member of the Russian government, he's a a current official. But there's no one representing the Ukrainians in these negotiations, and President Zelensky has said, you know, we can't decide the fate of Ukraine without Ukraine. But just being real, is, is that true? Can we decide the fate of the war without Ukraine at the
3: table? Right. Uh, yeah. We've, you know, we were very public uh, and, and, and adamant many times about saying nothing about Ukraine without Ukraine. Uh, but as you point out uh, very well, the reality is, has always been very different. Ukraine has had their desires, and, and it's self evident that they've asked for things and demanded things that uh, they didn't get until, for whatever reasons, we finally decided to go ahead and give it to them. But the reality is that without the United States' support primarily, the West in general, but the U.S. in particular, this war doesn't continue on. And without our active support, uh, the war can come to an end. Therefore, with our active encouragement in the diplomatic area, it can come to pass. We do have that kind of leverage, and and uh, that's that's just the reality of it. And so if we have to worry about taking advantage importance of American national security interests and American economic interests and our allies in NATO and in the European Union, Uh, That's something that we have to look out for first. We can't just say, hey, it's just a blank check, and anything that you guys want, as long as it takes, we'll just do it. Even if it's not in our national interest, I think those days are starting to come to an end. And with this uh, now full month of of a failure to really show on the battlefield that Ukraine can win this with all of the stuff we've given them for the past 16 months, I think is causing some people to reevaluate whether we need to push more on the diplomatic track.
0: To your point about the individuals who are involved in these talks, maybe falling more in the neocon camp, they did end up writing an article um, for Foreign Affairs around the time that these meetings supposedly took place, talking about the path forward to negotiations. And they said, before we can get Russia to the negotiating table we have to bolster Ukraine's defenses we're not quite at the point yet where we would be able to reach a settlement Um, so does that give you even more pause potentially about the way that they're approaching these talks and the likelihood of their
1: success
3: well yeah and and you've seen in in recent days even uh, with some some other revelations that some American officials uh, and, and apparently some Ukrainian officials uh, had an objective in some of these uh, this offensive to be able to push all the way down to Crimea to cut off the land bridge, to put uh, Crimea under the threat of, of long-range and mid-term missiles and then from a position of power to negotiate an end. Uh, look, that was never realistic. And, and anybody that thought that doesn't really understand the dynamics involved, the history involved, and the combat power ratios that are involved, because as you now see very graphically, uh, the Ukraine side is not going to be able to even get close to uh, reaching that objective to be able to put Crimea at threat. So if you're hoping that you can, from a position of uh, in power, get terms that are to your advantage now that you're seeing that instead you're, you've shown yourself as more vulnerable, which means now that if negotiations do take place, Ukraine is going to get a less good deal than they would have otherwise if they had tried something, for example, before this offensive. So my view is the longer we wait on this, the worse kind of a deal Ukraine is ultimately gonna get.
0: Lieutenant so, Colonel Daniel Davis, we have to leave it there, but thank you so much for helping us break this down.
3: Always my pleasure, thanks for having me.
1: Oceans Gate announced that it is suspending all exploration and commercial operations after five people tragically died on the Titan submersible's expedition to the Titanic last month.
0: The company announced the suspension at the top of their website. Washington, D.C. correspondent for News Nation, Kelly Meyer is here with us to discuss. Kelly, I, I suppose this seems kind of obvious that this would be the next step following the tragic deaths that took place but I don't know maybe not it seems like this company had a history of not taking safety concerns very seriously
2: yeah and I mean we pretty much could have anticipated that they were going to you know suspend all this exploration and commercial operation after what happened that ill-fated trip where those five lives were lost including the CEO of the company himself, um, Oceangate founder, Stockton Rush. But there's just so many questions. You know, I was up there the week it happened and went to Boston and was there uh, talking with folks at the US Coast Guard Boston when we found out that um, the submersible uh, exploded and imploded. Um, And we're now almost nearly three weeks since then. And there's still so many questions as to how this really happened you know you hear a lot about that um titanium end caps with the carbon fiber hull. you hear that a lot talked about when people are sharing stories about this situation um we don't know if that was you know something that caused this there have been experts critical of how they uh, manufacture that and put that together for the submersible Um, there's also saying that you know stockton rush may have tried to attempted to uh, abort the dive and resurface when they realized that something was wrong or had some type of warning um but they're trying to go through now just the debris and and potentially you know the human remains to find out uh, more answers if they can as to what happened and then try to you know, use that for exploration going forward. Um, I, we don't know the fate of the company itself, OceanGate, what kind of investigations they themselves are facing. And then, of course, there's beyond that more sea exploration and how they're going to kind of try to do
1: this more safely going forward across the board. So what do you make of this conversation, given that you are close with the Coast Guard? I mean, these are public dollars funding the hopeful rescue, uh, but also potentially collection of remains of the folks that were on this submersible. Also, Stockton Rush was someone who was very much against government regulation of this kind of ocean travel and made that trade-off of uh, carbon fiber for titanium. So it seems to me that public dollars are bearing the cost of the CEO's reckless behavior and how he ran the company and also the hobbies of people who have $250,000 to spare for a joyride on the submarine. What do you make of the conversation around the use of public dollars to go after the submersible in this case?
2: Yeah, and it seems like there's this, you know, really an international investigation into this because this is, um, you know, at the Titanic, like the, the Titanic wreckage site. So there, I know there are really no rules around, you know, who that area belongs to so it's kind of like the wild wild west in terms of what area takes jurisdiction so we know that canada uh transportation security board is investigating this the u.s uh coast guard and our transportation security safety board as well including others because there was multiple um international clients on board the submersible so you see a lot of different countries trying to find answers to this not only the US but of course the US is also digging into this because there were american lives on board and the american company um and i think you know there was a lot of questions around the dollars especially in that first week when there was so much um hype around the story and hoping you remember hopes folk uh hopes you know folks hoping that they would find these missing uh, five alive in those first few days where we didn't know the answers. So there was a lot happening. I remember they were trying to push more resources to this um, and sending in, you know, I think two military helicopters that also cost a lot of money per hour to get those flights um, to bring in the rescue equipment. So the main total, we just don't know yet. Um, But I think there was just so many uh, eyes on this uh, around the world and then people just wanting to know the answers. Um, So we'll have to wait and see how much this totals too. Um, But it seems as though this isn't ending just yet in terms of the investigation. It may take, you know, weeks, months, even more time than that to find out exactly what happened here. So that does mean uh, a more costly investigation.
0: Is this sparking a larger discussion as well about regulation or potential regulation of privately funded exploration? We know that this is happening in the realm of space as well. Um, Could this be maybe the turning point for the ability of these companies to have non-regulated, non-government affiliated um, space flights or dive teams or other related exploratory efforts?
2: You know it's interesting that you asked that i did talk to one oceanographer um someone that was uh, that does dives uh as a part of the titanic um you know titanic inc where they do the um museum tours around the world and exhibits and that kind of thing um and he dives himself he was a friend of the french diver who many were talking about uh, his life was lost on board the titan submersible and he was just saying you know it's unclear really what the future of Sea exploration looks like after this event. But when you talk to many of those who are involved in that community and are deep sea explorers themselves, um, they say that this is uh, something that they hope doesn't end, that we need to keep exploring uh, these deep parts of the ocean in a safe way, in a regulated way. So, whether this brings up a bigger conversation, even in places like Capitol Hill, of regulations for companies like this, um, I think that's something that we'll be watching. I'm sure. Going forward, we'll see some sort of congressional hearing on it, questions from senators and and Congress members, and maybe some legislation on this. But as we said too, with the Titanic, it's it's a wild, wild west again. Like you don't know who that area belongs to in terms of that specific area, who can legislate, who can and make some rules around what happens there. It's just a free range. Um, When I was talking to that oceanographer, he says anybody could go down and try to retrieve something from the ship. It's not regulated. So there's more questions around that. And just because it's no one's really claiming it, that international waters um, where the Titanic is. So there's a
1: lot of questions
2: around that as well.
1: Thank you, Kelly. I was wondering your just general thoughts on what would happen if we were to take this approach of, okay, we have this regulation in place. You can't do X, Y, or Z with this submersible. You can't build submarines with this kind of material. uh, You can't take passengers down in the submarine unless you sign a waiver that says we're not going to use public dollars that will come and save you. If you want to privately contract some kind of insurance, if anything goes wrong, that's fine. But if you're going to operate in the way that Stockton Rush, did and preferred to and was vocal about it, then okay, you need to sign this waiver that public dollars that could be going towards saving people who will abide by the regulations aren't going to go towards rescuing you. I guess this would probably have to be the case with just you you just said the jurisdiction problem. If the corporation was, was based in the United States, the regulations would apply and this kind of agreement could happen so that the travel could happen in the private sector and the free market without public dollars being on the line.
2: Yeah, and maybe that's something they'll do going forward. Um, You know, it it remains to be seen now how they're going exactly to, you know, regulate this going forward. Like you said, maybe if they do put that on a a waiver and then it's on the company, if something should happen rather than on the public, um, that may be something they take a closer look at. I'm sure there'll be some sort of, um, you know, waiver drawn up or law or, or, you know, some sort of restriction potentially from this. Um, But I think it's still so early in the process, I think right now, it seems the focus is on finding out what went wrong. So then they could say, okay, this is what happened. Maybe this is what needs to be done. Um, and I think that's still going to take some time.
0: On the question of the benefits of this type of exploration, I'm generally in favor of ex- of exploration, but what is the potential value? Um, of seeing the titanic wreckage what uh, what valuable information are we gaining from these types of private
2: exploration efforts yeah i mean in terms of something like the titanic um that seemed as though that was more of a historic dive um seeing something like this um i'm not sure what kind of more information they could collect um from that i know that one diver was going down and collecting uh, memorabilia and things like that but there may be things that they could take away from that i'm not too uh an expert in that area of what they can retrieve or 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 uh, take away from that kind of exploration but we know that this was more of a a tourism kind of um you know, dive that they were on, at least in this circumstance. But I think in terms of the larger deep sea exploration, which is what I believe the oceanographer I spoke to was referring to, Um, you know, besides these kind of tourist dives, something like the Titanic, which is still, I guess they could take something from that as well. Um, But they're saying largely looking at other parts of the sea that haven't been explored. I think they were saying, you know, we explore space, but there's so so much of the ocean, like 90% or something that hasn't been explored that we can learn things from. So on that side of it, more of the educational side, I think is what they were saying. Thank you so much
0: for joining us, Kelly. We appreciate it. Seattle clamped down on its homeless population ahead of the Major League Baseball All-Stars Week coming up July 7th through the 11th, clearing encampments, cleaning up streets, and moving RVs, giving the city a livable, business-friendly appearance.
1: But as conservative radio host in Seattle, Jason Rance, points out, it's not all good news. According to Rance, What's going on is they're cleaning up the streets in Seattle and the city has failed to curb the issue of growing homelessness there on a regular basis. And it's taking action now to save face as it welcomes people from all over the country to the Midsummer Classic event. So it sounds to me that their main qualm here uh, is that this is an issue all of the time and they care more about the money they're making off of this big event where they have a bunch of people coming in for. I mean, my take on this is you should also care about the city being worker friendly and curbing the homeless population by ensuring that there's good paying jobs and a thriving economy. Homelessness is never a problem you can fix by just pushing it around. And so by the US government intentionally keeping a population of people out of a job and unemployed, how can you expect those people to pay rent and have homes? They have to live and sleep somewhere. And for a lot of people, their only option is the streets. That's a a dysfunctional economy. So the problem's a lot bigger than just why are they doing it over MLB All-Star weekend and not on a regular basis? The problem is, why are they not addressing the problem of homelessness at its root and just treating it as an eyesore?
0: Well, I think that's fair to say that they're not treating homelessness as a comprehensive issue, but the norm or the majority reason why people end up homeless is not because just they don't have a job, but because they're suffering from either mental illness or drug addiction. That's the vast majority of homeless people who end up on the streets. And in a lot of cases, the cities that do offer resources to these individuals, they can't force them to accept the help. And so a lot of people will not go into shelters or go into um, addiction programs because they're simply not interested in trying to stop their addiction at that time. And we don't have a system where we say, okay, but you have to go to a treatment center or you have to get help for your mental illness. That's one of the problems that's been happening in DC. I've been covering the homelessness crisis here for quite some time, and the National Park Service is trying to clear out all of the encampments that are on public parkland by the end of 2023. And they're running into this problem that you mentioned, which is that the individuals who get displaced from these public parks end up just finding another place to camp out because they're not taking advantage of some of the long-term services that are offered. And so it's a a difficult issue to tackle because, on one hand, you want to keep the city safe for people who are walking past these encampments, for the people who live in them, certainly, because I don't think it's compassionate to just have people hanging out on the street where they're— you know, urinating or defecating in the place that they live. They are around other people who are perhaps mentally unstable and potentially violent. Um, But you also have to decide whether or not you are going to force people to get help, um, or if you're going to allow them to continue to move around different places where they're camping. and so, to me, this, uh, this announcement that they're going to be clearing out the homeless encampments in San Francisco just because of the All-Star Game is, um, I think, as you mentioned, Jessica, just the latest example of how these, uh, these city officials don't take the crisis seriously, and they're not interested in looking at the root issues. They're just interested in making things aesthetically pleasing when it matters for their bottom line.
1: Yeah, I think when it comes to public policy approaches to homelessness, any policy not just pertaining to homelessness is only as good as a city or a state's or a country's ability to implement it. And a lot of folks who are homeless are not aware of the resources available to them. A lot of people that are using drugs don't want to be using drugs. Most people who get evicted or lose their homes don't want to be in that position, don't want to be living in the streets. And then once they are on the streets, it's a pretty unpleasant experience when you're in that kind of a mental state and physical state as well. It's cold outside. Using drugs is something that I think a lot of people take to because they're put in that position. And so when it comes to addressing homelessness at its root, I think ensuring that anybody who wants a job in the United States, should be able to have one. And the market is failing to employ all people. I think that's gonna be the case in any economy, but the way it's currently operating is this belief that there's a natural rate of unemployment, that if more people are employed than this arbitrary statistic that the Federal Reserve has admitted they frequently get wrong and that the data doesn't support, that if unemployment dips below a certain level, inflation will become a problem. When in reality, all keeping a population of people unemployed without an ability to make money to pay rent does, is ensure that wages and benefits are kept low, and it puts corporations at an advantage. And I think the city, by cleaning up the homeless encampment just before the All-Star Game, shows how much the government is working to make our economy a safe environment for businesses to exploit workers and exploit the resources and land that we all have and live on. And I think that's really at the heart of this problem. And that's what's created the homelessness crisis in the first place. And so to address the problem at its root, we've got to put people in houses. That's how you resolve homelessness, no one can get a job from the streets. You need to be able to shower before an interview. You need to be able to have access to training and resources and be able to come home at the end of the day and shower so you can show up again tomorrow. We need to put people in a position so they can succeed economically. I think everyone has a stake in that. And then you increase productivity. It's literally a sound economic approach. The only reason that we don't do it is if you follow the money, is that the current system's pretty good for big corporations.
0: I think that sounds really nice on its face, but might be a little bit naive. In California, particularly in Los Angeles, where they have tried to put homeless people up in hotels and other temporary or long-term shelters, what ends up happening, unfortunately, due to the mental illness and drug addiction, is that they end up trashing the place and they end up making it basically unlivable for everybody else who occupies those spaces. So it would be great if we could just put people in a house and all of a sudden they would become productive members of society and they would be able to get a job. But until you really address the underlying issues as to why they're unable to keep a home, which include the mental illness and drug addiction, not just not having a job, then you're basically just outsourcing the problem to citizens who had nothing to do with causing it in the first place.
1: I don't think it's naive. I think it's quite enlightened to envision a, a world where we have policies that allow our economy to function, right? We can put people in homes, allow them to get jobs, give them training like the Danish Flex security model, which has been very successful in managing people, experiencing periods of job loss and unemployment so that they can re-enter the economy and become productive workers. I think something like that would go over quite well in the United States and the short-term investment of housing and mental health care and healthcare when it comes to medically assisted treatment for drug abuse. I think that we would see the majority of the problem resolved. Will there be some people who are so far gone or so caught up uh, in drugs and their mental state that they can't be helped? Maybe, but if we don't try, we won't know how much a solution would resolve the problem. So I think uh, at the bare minimum, we should be trying more than just putting all of the homeless folks' belongings in a dumpster and moving it to a new location so they can find a new place to sleep at night. That doesn't feel like a policy solution to me. So I think we have to try the policy solutions that have worked in other countries that have the potential to work here. And we have to try new things uh, for the ends of of helping the community on a constant basis, not just creating a business friendly or clean environment, but because we care about the people experiencing homelessness.
0: Yeah, I think the question is, do we have the willpower to make people receive treatment even if they say that they don't want it. Um, Because having job programs or transitional programs for people who are out of work before they reach homelessness is an awesome policy. I think that's a great idea. But once people are already in that position and they are struggling with the mental illness and drug addiction, then I think that we have to take a step further and say, you have to go into this program, you have to get the help that you need. And no is not an option, because you're not only hurting yourself, but you're hurting the community around you. And it ends up becoming a snowball effect where other people are dragged into the mess. And so I think so far, unfortunately, it seems like a lot of the officials in major cities who are trying to tackle the homelessness crisis are not interested in doing what's perceived as the hard thing, because they think it's not compassionate or inhumane. But I think it's more inhumane to allow people to flounder on the streets and refuse to accept help when it's so desperately needed.
1: I think the majority of people on the verge of homelessness and experiencing it are not people that are doing it because they're addicted to drugs. Right now, we have a median income in the United States of $31,000 and median rent of $1,702. When I think about those statistics and how that's going to leave $800 in the pockets of the median worker, the median citizen of the United States, that's not a lot of money to save for an emergency. And 60%, over 60% of Americans now are saying that they live paycheck to paycheck. So one simple emergency puts them in a position where they can't pay rent and they can easily be evicted. I think most people in the United States are just one accident away from being homeless. And many people become homeless simply because of an unfortunate emergency. That's not an economy that allows the average person to thrive. That's an economy that allows the average person to be on the brink of homelessness constantly. And so I just don't think that it's fair to say that the homeless population in the United States is all drug addicts. We don't collect a lot of data on who's homeless. We have estimates that it's in the hundreds of thousands. But if we did, I'm sure we would find that those conditions are very well what led to homelessness, not some kind of irresponsible drug abuse behavior. I think many people are victims of addiction, and it's uh, a sickness rather than something that they take to of their own volition. I think most people would not want to be using drugs that are using drugs, and moreover, it's not the majority of the homeless population.
0: Well, I didn't say that all homeless people are drug addicts and I also didn't say that they were irresponsible. I agree with you, addiction can very well be a sickness and that's why we have to provide treatment for individuals. And in some cases, unfortunately, they need to be forced to go to treatment because it's not a life to stay on the street wrapped up in your addiction. A lot of people, when they become addicts, don't have the mental wherewithal to ask for the help that they need or to accept help. And if someone is sitting on the street in a homeless encampment, and a lot of the people in the encampments do unfortunately have mental illness and drug addiction, There are a lot of homeless people, absolutely, who were put there through economic circumstances. But these encampments that we're talking about in San Francisco are basically a different beast entirely, where they are made up of basically individuals who are living a very... uh, unfortunate lifestyle, I guess you could say, and they end up gravitating towards each other because they end up becoming basically these places of lawlessness. And when you hear from uh, statistics of public safety, you end up seeing that a lot of the police calls and a lot of the calls for help um, in these cities end up coming from those homeless encampments because of the high rates of violence and sexual assault that exists there.
1: When I think about San Francisco, I can't help but think about how we saw the tech sector grow so much there and so many folks who are making very high salaries working for the biggest corporations in the tech industry, they drove up the price of rents and they drove people out of their homes. The situation of homelessness in San Francisco is one that begins and ends with America's largest corporations in the state not addressing the problem of gentrification. When you have the conditions of people being forced out of the formal economy and forced out of their homes, of course we're going to see them engage in some lawlessness. They've been forced out of the formal economy. They have to make money and they have to survive somehow. And they've made it illegal in many cities, cities, including cities like San Francisco, to occupy certain public spaces, to even sleep on the streets. So when you criminalize homelessness in response, of course, it's gonna be unlawful behavior to be living in an encampment, in a place that's not a formal residential area. But I think that uh, knowing that, that this begins and ends with the problem of people being pushed out and the problem of economic circumstances, the solution also has to be pertaining to the system that failed people were living in a city who were doing quite well before we had these uh, economic disturbances from corporations coming in and forcing people to be gentrified out of places they called homes in their community. We need solutions that are relevant to the problem, not ones that address symptoms of it, which I really think criminalizing homelessness and moving encampments is precisely that. They're still going to exist. We could force them into treatment. I totally agree. We should provide public health care when it comes to mental health and addiction help for these people. I think that's a good solution and one that would probably curb a lot of homelessness in cities like San Francisco and across the country. But unless you give them homes and economic opportunity, it's gonna be a problem that continues to perpetuate.
0: Unfortunately, we have to leave it there. We'll be back with more rising. The U.S. economy added 209,000 new jobs, and unemployment dipped to 3.6 percent in June. This is according to new Labor Department data released just this morning. That's the slowest month of job growth since December 2020. Nonetheless, President Biden took to Twitter to boast. Quote, today we learned over 200,000 jobs were created last month, bringing our total to 13.2 million jobs created since I took office. Unemployment remained below 4 percent. Working-age Americans with jobs is at a 20-year high, and inflation is down by more than half. This is Bidenomics.
1: Over on Fox News, commentators poured cold water on the White House's celebration. Let's watch.
3: So you are seeing some signs of cooling in the labor market and that's important because the president's going to get out today and tout his 12 million, 13 million jobs. I got to tell you, that's not telling the whole story right now. A lot of that is filling in from the pandemic. The real job gains have been much more modest than that. In fact, By some measures, we're still a million to two million jobs below where we should be right now because so many people are sitting on the sidelines. They're not participating in the economy.
1: So I think what he says there is not entirely wrong. I think there are a lot of jobs that unemployment doesn't count just on the basic fact that the metric is, okay. who's been looking for jobs in the past four weeks? and is available for work. There are a lot of people who would like to have a job who have given up on looking because they've been looking for so long. Those folks are never counted. But I think the way he says, you know, if we were on track, we would have about one to 2 million more jobs. And what we're seeing is recovery from job loss during the pandemic. Okay, maybe that's true. But I think anyone can say anytime, as long as we have unemployment, those jobs, should those positions should be filled. Everyone should have a job who wants one. Having a, a certain level of the population unemployed is unnecessary. I'm not sure how he got that metric though. Cause I don't think he agrees with me on that. Because if he did, it would be over 6 million jobs that he said. So I think a lot of Fox News commentators are so close to getting the point, but maybe not. I have no idea what calculation he made to say we should have 1 to 2 million more jobs other than it would be nice if 1 to 2 more million people were employed.
0: I think his point about the post-pandemic recovery is important because if you have a situation where essentially the entire economy is shut down and then those jobs eventually return, uh, I don't think you can use the term created in response to those jobs the way that the Biden administration does. To me, that seems kind of manipulative and dishonest. And this latest jobs report is not good news. This is a slowing of the economy after years of inflation. And we're still seeing real wages decline for most Americans. We're seeing that the middle class has had lower average uh, real incomes. And so that's not a success. That's not a victory. A lot of people are still struggling to pay for basic necessities. A lot of people are struggling to pay for energy costs. And so it's just kind of bizarre to me that the Biden administration has not only touted this particular jobs report as a success, but also that they're running on Bidenomics. I would think that when you have polls saying that only about 25 percent of Americans support your handling of the economy, or that only about a quarter of Americans trust you to handle the economy, that you would be running as far away from that issue as possible. And yet they seem to think that this is a victory lap for them.
1: It's so strange to me that we're getting two completely different messages from the Federal Reserve, Jerome Powell, who the Biden administration didn't appoint, but could have replaced. He was an appointment from the Trump administration but their explicit intent right now is to actually put more people out of a job because their working theory is that that will quell inflation. We are seeing job growth and inflation steadying because that policy solution wasn't relevant to the type of inflation we're experiencing. It was not demand-driven inflation, which suggests that hiking interest rates wasn't going to resolve it. That's beside the point. When you have the Federal Reserve explicitly saying that it would be good for the economy, if we increased unemployment to cool the labor market a bit. But then you have the White House and the Biden administration saying, we have this great job growth, and that's Bidenomics. Those two things can't be true in the same economic reality. And both are messages coming out of this administration that makes absolutely no sense. It seems to me that the only consistency here is if they tell people, okay, we're experiencing job growth, we're doing good things, we're improving the economy, this is all good, and you have the Federal Reserve say, well, you know, inflation's cooling, this is all good as well. There's a truth here that is, the administration's totally okay with having people who are unemployed be the sacrificial lambs to bring inflation down is their message. But what they really wanna do is make the labor market so that people have consistently low wages. We've seen wages remain stagnant relative to inflation since about the 1970s. They want those wages to stay low. So profit margins can stay high and they can still tell this message that we're working really hard to make the economy good for people when we're seeing record numbers of people who are living paycheck to paycheck in the United States. That tells you the economic reality not these statistics that they try to convince us are our economic reality.
0: Yeah, I agree, it is weird for all of the messaging to be coming from the perspective that the labor market is too good for workers, that people don't want to work apparently. That's a claim that we hear a lot, but the reality is that they don't wanna work in jobs that don't pay them uh, enough to do the work. And so to hear those messages about the labor market being too hot, while we also hear that Uh, real wages are down for Americans, those two things just don't seem to go together. And then also the claim that inflation has fallen since um, since the past year. Well, okay, but it's still higher than it was when Biden first took office. Um, so there seems to be a lot of clever accounting going on here. It's, it almost reminds me of when the Biden administration suddenly found an extra $10 billion when they were sending weapons to Ukraine. Um, I don't feel like we're getting the full story either.
1: Yeah. And Biden economics by their definition is, kind of the opposite of trickle-down economics. They wanna counter that kind of messaging of of uh, uh, Reaganomics. And that's not really what we have here. That's not really the approach the Biden administration has taken. He's said explicitly Bidenomics is investing in the working and middle-class and that we can grow and improve upon the economy by investing in working and middle-class people. Is that what the Biden administration is doing? No. No, people are worse off right now than they have been. And so by saying it's Bidenomics to see this j- this job growth, I don't think that's Bidenomics by their definition of Bidenomics. And then you have folks like the Fox News commentators pointing out that if we were increasing our productive capacity on the same trajectory we were before the pandemic, perhaps we would have seen more job growth. That might, if that were true and shown in the data, make the case that the interest rates are actually putting more people out of a job, the interest rate increases. Is that the case? I'm not sure the Federal Reserve would say that. I think there's a lot of people that are still not being counted that lost their jobs during the pandemic and have lost hope at looking for a new one. I think they're just not telling the full story here And if they wanted to do Bidenomics, it needs to be very clear to working and middle class people that the administration is investing in them. And I think they feel very viscerally that that's not the case.
0: Yeah. And to your point about Bidenomics supposedly being about working from the ground up for giving more agency to working class Americans, we see in this jobs report that most of the jobs growth was in government jobs, 60,000 jobs added there. The next few categories are healthcare, social assistance, and then finally you get to construction at 23,000 jobs added. But then you keep going down and you get professional and business services. So it's really odd if most of the jobs are coming from government growth as opposed to uh, private sector work. I don't really see how that's a huge victory for working in middle-class individuals.
1: Yeah, and what are the nature of the jobs? That's a story right. that they don't like to tell and it's because we've outsourced the uh, job of job creation to private banks. That's a task that doesn't need to be outsourced, but we've just given the entire uh, purview to private banks to say, who do you think deserves a loan or an investment to start a business? Who gets to grow their business What are the nature of those businesses? They usually make that decision in the direction of what's the highest return on investment. Wall Street's also motivated by investing on that same premise. What does that leave us? An economy where there are a lot of gaps in the market for things people really want and value, but are not profitable to create when we have crumbling infrastructure and crumbling roads, our schools are not nearly as good as they used to be. When we have elderly people not able to receive care because it's either prohibitively expensive or not available to them, there are all kinds of gaps in the market that actually, if we wanted a functioning economy, Congress would use their power of the purse like they did in the post war era under FDR and say, okay, we actually need some good paying public jobs that address the gaps in the market. And those jobs don't need to be done by publicly run programs. They can be done by private contractors if you wanna take that route. But the government and Congress have an obligation to do something to address the gaps in the market. They cannot pretend that uh, the, the private sector is doing an efficient job of running the economy. They cannot pretend that they don't actually have a role in determining the outcomes in the economy. They absolutely do. And they're doing the irresponsible thing by ignoring that reality and just saying like, oh, we've done a lot and now people have more jobs than they used to and things are going quite well.
0: We're gonna take a quick break and be back with more Rising after this. Casey DeSantis has launched a new campaign, Mamas for DeSantis, let's watch. In America, we've witnessed a lot. And put up with enough.
3: You guys gotta go. He is
2: arresting her for being on a public playground. Her kids are here. What are
0: We've been forced into silence.
3: <laughs> into compliance. Keep your hands <laughs> done told that we must trust the science.
2: Indoor and outdoor venues
3: should be closed. We've been told that we must deny truth, back down, and look the other way. But enough is enough. When you come after our kids, we fight back because there's nothing we won't do to protect our children. They're not yours. These are our kids. Our nation's children are all our children.
0: We will not. All right, Jessica, I'm sure you have some thoughts on this ad. What do you think?
1: I just don't think political campaigns should ever be giving horror film. It's giving horror film. (laughs) I think that if you have a policy platform, that addresses some issue pertaining to children and the role of mothers in our society. Talk about what laws you would like to change, what policies are in place right now, what your solution is. We didn't get any of that. We understand that the vibe was very much, there's a problem with the transgender people in the United States and that children are being groomed and they shouldn't be forced to wear masks and they should uh, be allowed to go to schools during the pandemic. We got that from the imagery and some of the commentary. But I just don't feel that this was the kind of political ad that sends a clear message about what the policy platform is and specifically what policies you want to change. And I think that's necessary for political ads. I think it could be misleading for many people.
0: Yeah, I don't know if there was more of the ad that we didn't show on the program. But I think after that part where she says, you know, when you come after our kids, we fight back, that's where you launch into, "Okay, here's what my husband did to try to protect kids from these various threats that you just saw. I agree it was a little aggressive in terms of the negativity, but I agreed with all of the issues that she was highlighting, whether it's protecting women's sports from biological men or preventing the forced masking of children who were two, three years old, whether they were on planes or in school, or preventing them from playing at the park. I think those are issues that do resonate with parents, especially when we saw the Virginia movement of school board parents ahead of the gubernatorial election in 2019. A lot of parents were really upset by things that they saw happening in their kids' schools Um, A lot of their kids were out of school for quite some period of time that led to learning loss and a lot of emotional and mental disorders. When they finally went back to school, they were told that they either had to wear masks or get the vaccine or both. And this was something that really um, bothered a lot of parents because the science did not suggest that kids were at any particular grave threat of either getting a serious case of COVID or giving it to other people. Um, So this is effective, I think, and especially in Florida where the COVID policies were a lot laxer. But I think you're right that they needed to connect the dots a little bit better in between um, what the threats were and then how the DeSantis family, because apparently they're running as a team now, intended to combat those or did in the past.
1: Yeah, I think the mamas for DeSantis coming from Casey DeSantis is a very weird vibe. We try and avoid this idea of like a political regime being a family in the United States. I think that's why a lot of people didn't particularly appreciate the Clintons. But I think when it comes to communicating policies about children, you have to be very clear because I could watch that same video of the kid crying in a public space, being told to wear a mask and say, yeah, the kid had to wear a mask because there were a lot of people in the public spaces that I was in that we're not wearing masks. And if you're a mother and you wanna protect your kids and you know this might prevent some of the virus from getting into their mouths, you might say, okay, now my job as a mother has been made more difficult by this policy not being enforced as much. And these people coming into public spaces and putting other people at risk when if they don't wanna wear the mask, they should do that on their own private property instead of putting other people at risk, right? That message could be taken in a completely different way. Uh, And when it comes to the issue of transgender athletes, that's been made such a big deal. Uh, And it's been made a much larger deal than it is a problem that exists in our society. I think when you see that the transgender population in the United States is about 2% of people, it's like there are policies that are on people's minds much more. Does it matter for a mother if she can provide for her kids or her and her husband or whoever her partner is can provide for her kids? Is there economic opportunity? There's a reason that jobs in the economy are pulling at the number one issue. That's an issue for mothers as well, and it's probably one that impacts more uh, than people being transgender and playing sports.
0: Yeah, I actually agree that some economic messaging in the Mamas for DeSantis uh, movement, I guess is what they're calling it, would be helpful and probably very effective considering that is a top issue for voters. But I don't think that you know, we can't walk and chew gum at the same time. And although that transgender people are a small percentage of the population, that's an issue that does matter for a, a girl who has dreams of going to become a college athlete or who has dreams of winning a state championship. And it's an issue of basic fairness. And so the reason that people identify with that issue and why it has become a bigger problem is because these cases are so obviously unjust and they end up becoming nationalized because when you watch a biological male blow a woman out of the water in a 100-meter dash or in the pool, everyone can see that for what it is.
1: Yeah, I think for me, I know that there are a lot of men that I could smoke in a 100-meter dash or whatever. I think you know the physical form you're born with and how much of an athlete you are isn't always something that's clear across gender. I think someone who's on HRT or taking estrogen and participating in sports, I think you'd probably find that they couldn't outperform a lot of male athletes. I think it's very dependent on the kind of build that you have. And so I don't know what the the right solution is that will make everyone happy because I don't think that there even is one. But I think that to include people in sports who wanna play the sports with people whose gender they identify with should be fine they should be allowed to compete and i think people are born with all kinds of different bodies and i think if we put kids on puberty blockers early enough who were clear that they were transgender or started transitioning early we'll find that they have a comparable physical form to a lot of other women most people who uh, transition, because this is the issue that I think matters more to people, is people who transition from being uh, gender assigned at birth of male and transitioning to female, uh, that there's the concern that they'll be much stronger and what have you. Uh, But the earlier that happens, actually the the physical form that when you look at someone, it's very hard to tell the difference. And I heard this even from tiny towns and uh, conservative places like Mount Air in Iowa, where they say, yeah, we know a girl who transitioned very young and and we all support her. And these were people who are very conservative, who voted for Donald Trump. And so I think by making the issue taboo and a larger problem than it actually exists in our society comes from a place of fear rather than genuinely caring about fairness.
0: Uh, there's a lot to unpack there from the, uh, the biological differences between men and women um, in sports. I mean, for example, if you look at Serena and Venus Williams, who said that they could beat, you know, the 300th ranked male, they ended up getting destroyed by them. Because although there are obviously going to be cases where a woman can defeat a male because she's a professional athlete and he's not, we do know that based on uh, muscle density, height, weight and other factors between men men and women, there is a larger gap in basic performative metrics between a man and a woman um, who are at the same sports level, who are at the same competitive level. And so that's where the issue of unfairness comes in, where you have a man who might be ranked in the hundreds if they were competing against other men but all of a sudden when they're competing against other women they're the best in the field because there is that just innate biological superior advantage and then on the issue of puberty blockers basically what you're saying is that in order to level the playing field we don't just say men can't compete with women instead we put children even earlier on a life-altering Uh, chemical treatment that can render them sterile, have them uh, develop brittle bone disease, have them develop mental issues, and uh, not give them the opportunity to detransition if they choose because these treatments do end up causing permanent side effects. I don't think that's the answer to making sports fair.
1: I think when you compare Venus and Serena Williams playing a man in tennis, they didn't play a transgender woman, they played a man. And I think there is a difference between someone who has gone through hormone therapy and has transitioned to become a female and someone who is a man. Transgender women are not men. They're different in their physical makeup and they're they're different when it comes to their gender identity as well. It's not just something that's going on mentally, it's something that's very physical as well, the transition process. I think puberty blockers, Uh, are something that is a decision between children and their parents and their doctor. And of course, there are all kinds of other medical practices that people elect to be involved with. They elect to take different kinds of drugs and have different medical procedures that are life altering. And I think we find this one in particular to be more taboo because of our social feelings about gender. And so puberty blockers are an alternative. Maybe if you're talking to your kid and they're not really sure if they want to transition, but they have some feelings to prevent them from actually developing into a gender that they don't want to be. So it's just something that allows the child the, the child more time to decide for themselves, uh, rather than having the parents say, Okay, well, it sounds like you know, you do want to transition, let's get you started on hormone therapy. It can prevent them from developing into having male parts and having male bone structure and having male muscle mass uh, when they actually wanna be a woman and compete in women's sports maybe one day. And so I think in the interest of freedom and parents making choices about their kids, which I think is something that Casey DeSantis does want, uh, we should let parents make that decision with their kids. And I don't think it's really about fairness uh, when you're comparing men and women when we should be comparing transgender women and women who play sports on the same team or compete against each other.
0: Well, even transgender women, as you put it, who are on hormone therapy still retain a distinct physical advantage over a biological woman. And although I do support parental choice, as does Casey DeSantis, we don't support child abuse. And I think the question that we need to ask is, what if that hypothetical child you're talking about ultimately decides that they do want to be a man, and they wish maybe that those secondary sex characteristics hadn't been Uh, suppressed by hormone therapy. Unfortunately we're out of time but we'll be back with more Rising after this. Vice President Kamala Harris recently shared her thoughts on how she understands culture. Let's listen.
2: Culture is,
1: it, it is a reflection of our moment and our time, right? And 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 present culture is the way we express how we're feeling about the moment. And and we should always find times to express how we feel about the moment. That is a reflection of joy because, you know, it comes in the morning. (laughs) We have to find ways to also express the way we feel about the moment in terms of just having language and and a connection to how people are experiencing life.
0: Yikes, Jessica. (laughs) Um, I don't know why they keep sending Kamala Harris anywhere. They should just hide her somewhere in the West Wing at this point, because it seems like every time she speaks in public, we end up with one of these weird circular scenarios where she can't even seem to finish a sentence, let alone a thought.
1: Yeah. If we find Xanax in the White House, I think we know who's that one would be. Um, (laughs) Yeah,
0: she's probably not the cocaine uh, culprit, but maybe some (laughs) other drug.
1: Yeah, no, that seems like downers to me. Uh, (laughs) She can put a lot of words together in a way that makes absolutely no sense. I don't know how someone can say so many words and make zero points whatsoever. And then when she trails off just to come in with a, a random phrase that doesn't mean anything at all, you know, it. It comes in the morning, Amber. What? I'm sorry. This is the vice president of the United States. I'm kind of inspired. I just want to say random phrases that make no sense within my commentary and just let everyone just project their own meaning onto them. You know, Kamala's got the cutting board out and she's chopping onions. (laughs)
0: It's pretty funny to go back to the uh, Democratic primary campaign when Kamala was basically the favorite of the Democratic National Committee and they were pushing her very hard. And then she just crashed and burned in the first debate and ended up having to be one of the first individuals to drop out. And I remember the media and the Democratic officials at the time being so confused as to why this happened. They kept claiming it was because America wasn't ready for a black woman and it was all of the inherent white national Nationalism in our country. And now that we've actually seen her perform on the national stage in this position of power, it's become quite obvious why she did not do well in that election. And shockingly, as we know, the vice president is usually the individual who's considered next in line for the presidency after the president steps down or uh, finishes out their two terms. And so I'm sure the Democratic Party is scrambling, trying to think of how the heck they can get her out of that position so that she is not the, um, the eventual runner up to Biden.
1: Yeah, I'm not sure how the the democratic establishment imagined this would go. We saw how Kamala performed on the campaign trail to then see her fail miserably and still make her the darling of the democratic party and want her to be vice president is absolutely mind blowing. The way that they keep picking candidates that have proven to be unpopular, that have proven to fail and embarrass the democratic party suggests that maybe it is their plan to fail. Like maybe that is the strategy to put up candidates that just barely can beat Republicans, Republicans who are oftentimes very unpopular. Do you know how bad you have to be at picking candidates and running the primary process to decide that Bernie Sanders, who was polling 60% in a race against Trump and still want Hillary to be your candidate? It's just so clear that they're picking people who will uphold neoliberalism instead of running a party that will win elections. That's their priority, that's why they exist, and that's why a lot of people are deciding to leave the Democratic Party. But how can you watch this and not be embarrassed?
0: Exactly, and this is the same exact thing that they're doing this time around, where they're trying to suppress RFK Jr. and Marianne Williamson. They don't want to hold a debate because they don't want real competition. They don't want Biden being challenged. They don't want any outsider candidates being able to bring new ideas to the stage. And I think this is true in both parties. The Republican establishment also hates the idea of outsider candidates. They hated Trump in 2016. Um, they they hated uh, people like Rand Paul, anyone who challenged the military-industrial complex. They hated people who did real investigations in regards to COVID, as opposed to just giving lip service to all of these different ideas. And so across both political parties, I think it's such a shame and a detriment to the American people that they're so insistent on propping up these unqualified. Uh, uninspiring, mediocre people who have no business being in power, but because they hold the quote unquote right ideas, they're somehow put into place and propped up by the regime.
1: Yeah, I think Kamala or Kamala is such a good example of this thing that I've noticed. That's a trend among political commentators, among politicians, uh, among anyone who speaks publicly about issues that matter to people, is that when you try And make everyone happy and when you try and say things that are non-controversial and agreeable you start to not make any sense at all Kamala Harris could have said something that actually was substantive about what the definition of culture is culture is the present moment culture is the vibes what are you talking about no one knows what you're talking about you're not making Clear or coherent points, and I think when you try and make everyone happy, you're either gonna say things that contradict each other or you're gonna say things that make no sense at all. And Kamala Harris is definitely the latter, and I think Biden oftentimes is the latter as well. Their way of speaking is unfortunately very similar. Incoherent sentences, you trail off, and then you come back around with something that sounds like a turn of phrase, but no one's actually Heard it before. Joy comes in the morning might be a phrase that's from a different culture than the one I grew up in, but uh, it's certainly not one that I recognize. So it seems to me a lot like Biden. It's the move of this administration.
0: Right. It's almost like these are people who are haunted by their past policy positions and have no interest in trying to defend them. Like in Kamala's case, she completely fell apart when she was pressed by Tulsi Gabbard on the fact that she was um, a prosecutor who would go after people for truancy and other minor crimes, but maybe not some of the bigger stuff. She put a lot of people in jail for minor marijuana offenses. And Biden has a history of being more of a blue dog Democrat, And now he's trying to govern as a progressive or at least pay lip service to the progressive wing of the party. And they haven't ever explained where their evolution came from, and instead they just shout out empty platitudes. Kamala's way of relating to the American people now is talking about how much she likes yellow school buses and how she loves Venn diagrams. Elsewhere in this um, presentation at the Essence Fest, she talked again about how she loves Venn diagrams, you know, the two circles that interlap. We all know what Venn diagrams are, Kamala, and I promise you that this is not a passionate topic for most of the American people. They want to hear basically about anything else that moves you.
1: Yeah, taking no position at all. Then in times where you have to run for office, taking the progressive position, they really ran a progressive policy platform, and that is how they won. And then they did not govern in that way at all. And crazy that these two could be running mates. When Biden was someone that advocated for the segregation of buses and Kamala made this huge moment on the debate stage. Like I had to take a different bus. It it meant that I had a lot of more travel time to get to school. It was a hassle for me out in California. I was the victim of your busing policy that you advocated for. Then people looked into it a little bit and found that actually, Uh, the legislation Biden voted for and advocated for on the floor of Congress would not have affected Kamala's busing or Kamala's busing situation. Still, you have these two with very insane track records, Tulsi Gabbard pointing out the truancy situation. Kamala Harris or Kamala Harris can't get upset about her not being able to get to school because of certain busing and then penalize parents who were not able to get their kids to school and make it a criminal act. Those two things can't exist in the same moral or ethical structure. And so I think you're absolutely right that these are people that are haunted by their past policy decisions. They haven't said how their thinking has changed to arrive at their current platform. And that leaves them with literally nothing to say at all. So this election cycle is gonna be a very interesting one. Hopefully they they come up with some kind of explanation because just listening to platitudes constantly, I don't think is gonna go over well for anyone.
0: No, I don't think so either. I mean, Kamala Harris even made a T-shirt off of that moment. I believe something along the lines yeah. of, that little girl was me. Um, so, unfortunately, that wraps it up for today's show. Jessica, it's been a pleasure as always.
1: It has. You know, joy comes in the morning, Amber.
0: <laughs> well, make sure you get a good night's sleep then. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. And for those of you who like to listen while on the go, we are now available anywhere you listen to podcasts. All right, that's it for us. We'll see you all next Friday.